All right, so Matthew chapter 8 is where we find ourselves. And as we're here, let's just start off by reading... Oh, let's read, let's read this, the passage that we're going to read here. It's going to be Matthew 8, verse 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Verse 7. And he said to him, Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell to you, tell you that no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. There's a lot of stuff going on in those verses. And was there a healing that was done? Yes. And it's kind of a spoiler if we just read the whole thing and you're like, well, the guy gets healed at the very end. Yes. But I don't think that's the biggest part. Well, for that guy, it was the biggest part. But I don't know that that's the biggest part of what Matthew is trying to get across as we read this. I think that there's things that lead up to this that are so very important. So if you've been coming to the Telios Christian Fellowship, you know the bulletin covers and the screens change every single Sunday and they kind of line up or tie in with the message somehow. But I know some of you, when you come, you're just like, how is this going to fit into what we're talking about? And you know, it's like, oh, great. Typically, this word, we do see it in our culture and our society, but not in the way that it was originally meant or in the English language. Typically, maybe some of you came and you're like, Marvel huh, I wonder if he's going to talk about like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and maybe this somehow it's going to be some message he's going to try to tie in all this. And I thought, you know, yeah, I'm going to try to look up some facts as to why Marvel is called Marvel, Marvel Comics, and maybe it'll tie in with the message and I can do that. But I just have to say, no, it doesn't. So I can't do that. I was also going to go, well, maybe I could tell you like, hey, listen, so all the problems in Infinity War are going to be solved by this Marvel character, um, uh, uh, Super Centurion. He was in a comic book back in the 1960s, and he's going to fix all the problems that happened in Infinity War. No, that's not what this is about either. This has to do with a word that is actually in our passage of Scripture this morning, and it has to do with a centurion as well. And so that's why the title of this morning's message is Marvel. But we need to talk about centurions for just a moment here. Who is this guy that's coming to Jesus? I mean, he just had a leper come up to him. And so we talked about what leprosy was and how that even exists to this day as Hansen's disease. But what about centurions? There are not centurions walking around unless you're at like a period festival or something like that. In which case, yes, there are people that do walk around that way. But the Roman army, the way that it was comprised and their structure, they were a professional army and they, they had their structure down. They would have a legion. A legion had approximately 6,000 soldiers in it, approximately. Those were also broken down into smaller groups called cohorts and then smaller groups called centuries. Now, if you took a legion and you divided it, 6,000 guys, and you divided it into 60 groups, if I do my math right, that comes to up to about 100 guys in a group, right? That would be a century. 
And the person in charge of those approximately 100 men that century was called the centurion. So this guy that's coming to Jesus is a man in charge of 100 fighting men. He's not some low person on the totem pole or somebody that's just kind of like, hey, I'm just, I'm just new here or I just got this uniform. He knows what he's doing. He's been tested in battle. You don't just become a centurion. You're tested in battle and you've proven you have leadership skills, not just to be a, you know, a lone wolf that goes out and does it by himself. You have the ability to lead other men in combat and you're effective at it. I'm going to show you uh, some of the ranks of military in the Roman army. And as history went by, there were some slight changes here and there, but we'll start over on the right here. There's your legionary and your legionary, you know, he's, you know, kind of your foot soldier. This legionary was a Roman citizen and they would be enlisted for two decades, 20 years, a legionary would be enlisted. Um, As they are proving themselves in combat, they have opportunities for advancement. That's how some of these other positions happen. There is the centurion. He is the backbone of the army, experienced soldier, like I said. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about him in a second. And then you have the century optio. The century optio, his role was to be um, appointed by the centurion. The centurion looks at his hundred guys and goes, if something happens to me, who's going to be my next? He's already picking his successor kind of a thing. And he's like, you are the one that if I fall in combat, you lead these men like I would lead them. And don't you turn around. So that's who the century optio would be. Then there's a centurion. Then there's that. He's kind of the place where the work was being done in the army, in the centurion. And, you know, you may look at some of these, um, uh, the way that they would dress and you kind of look, and if you even look in your bulletin or you can kind of see it there, like he has a functional helmet, but then he's got this, you know, welded on piece that's got, uh, you know, these feathers or plumes that would be coming out. Right. And it's this idea of like, why in the world are you going to wear a hat on top of your helmet? Like what is they're going to see you? That is the point. A centurion. And also, if you notice, too, it's always bothered me that, you know, it's fanning out to the side. I'm like, man, turn that thing 90 degrees and go aerodynamic with it. Like just like get the feathers. It looks cooler that way, too. But that's not what a centurion would do because a centurion wasn't there to be hidden. A centurion was like, I am a centurion. And when you see me come over this hill, you should be afraid for your life because I'm going to take it if you're still standing when I get to you. A centurion doesn't mess around. A centurion is already proven. And so there's your backbone. You have these other ones, a senior tribune. The senior tribune was the second to the general. Well, isn't the general like the one that really does it? Well, here's the interesting thing about the Roman army. The general was one of the senators. Could you imagine if we had one of our senators or congressmen like, hey, you're going to Iraq, like you're off to Afghanistan. It might change a few things, right? The Roman army did that. The general was appointed by Caesar. He was appointed, you know, by the emperor and the emperor would then say, you are going to go and lead, you know, this corps. You're going to take them and take this legion out and have conquest. Well, that person's like, well, I'm usually one of the senators. Yes, and and the senators knew at any point in time they could be called upon to lead. But because they are not warriors, who are they really going to depend upon? Centurions. So it really comes back down to where's the work really being done? The general would, if if the general was wise and smart, they would look at the experience, the real world combat experience of their fighting men, specifically their centurions. The senior tribune was there in case the general fell. Um, it was, he was the second in command if something was to happen to the general. 
So this is the kind of guy right here in the center. He's the kind of guy that Jesus, that Jesus uh, is having this encounter with. You also notice the centurion understands authority. We'll talk about authority in just a moment, but I do want you to notice that both in your bulletin and on that screen there, he happens to be holding this stick. I wonder what that's all about. Is that part of it or is that just like a... No, no, it's, it's part of it. It's actually called a centurion staff or a vine staff, but we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit here. So we look at these first two verses one more time. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. There's something about the centurion that right off the bat you recognize is unique. You would expect a battle-hardened, rough-and-tumble kind of a guy, maybe coarse in his language, to come to Jesus. And here's the thing, the Romans are the occupying force. Israel, the land of Israel is not their home. And so this man is there as a police force, if you will, over these people who are being subjugated by Roman authority. The Jews were like their prayer while the Romans were over them were, God, please bring us a Messiah who will be this conquering king who will um, absolutely defeat the Romans and drive them away. That's what the Jews were looking for. That's why when Jesus came on a donkey on Palm Sunday, they're like, That's not the kind of king I'm looking for. They wanted a a Messiah that would come and rid them of Roman rule. So think about the position that the centurion had, just generally speaking. He was a person that wasn't um, liked by the people that were under him. I'm sure that under their breath, the people would call him a Roman dog. And under his breath, somebody in his position would call the people dogs as well. There would be this separation because, well, I'm a Roman soldier and you're just a Jew. And the Jews would go, you're an uncircumcised Roman soldier and we're children of the Most High God. And so there'd be this division between the two and there would be these these gaps there. Also, a Jewish person would be defiled if they came in physical contact with a Gentile, which the Roman centurion would have been. So there's physical space. It's not like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Good. To-. None of that. No. So there's physical space. There's a, it's cold. So this man already has challenges as, he's, as did every centurion if they were left in the spot to kind of occupy and be the occupier. But this man says something very interesting. He comes to Jesus. And did you notice the word he used? He used the same word that the leper used. He comes to Jesus and he doesn't call Jesus a dog or he doesn't call Jesus, you know, something, you know, even probably worse than that. He says, Lord. The centurion has no reason to say anything like that to Jesus. I mean, it, I don't know. I heard this example. It made me chuckle. Like, you know, if you kind of go through the drive through and somebody gets your order and you're like, thank you very much. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. Thank you, master. Like, that'd be a bit odd, right? Here's your change and here's your food. Thank you, master. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Like, he'd go, that's an odd, like, why are you giving such a high title to just some common person, right? I'm sure people thought that when they heard the centurion talking to Jesus and going, do you just call him Lord? Why would you do that? I would, I'm going to say this right off the bat. I believe the centurion understood who Jesus was, which is why he addressed him that way, because he had no other reason to address Jesus as Lord. None. Not only that, this centurion, there's some things we know about the centurion because this story about this centurion and his servant who is dying, it's also written by Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor. He really wrote in more of a chronological order and there's certain things that Luke will um, detail specifically. Matthew did not write 
primarily in chronological order. So he's going over the theme. What is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus is king. So as Matthew's writing, he's bringing out in circumstance after circumstance in the Gospel of Matthew why Jesus is the king, the king that you and I should be under as well. And here we see a Roman centurion saying, Lord, to Jesus. Now, let's look at that parallel passage. You'll see it on the screen here. It's from the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes about this as well. It gives us a few more details that Matthew uh, didn't key in on. So here's what Luke noticed. Luke 7, verses 3 through 5. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So right off the bat, I believe this Roman centurion knew that if he was supposed to come or make contact with Jesus, Jesus would be unclean. So thinking about Jesus, he said, listen, I'm going to send some elders of the Jews to go on my behalf, speak for me, and go to Jesus and speak for me. Okay, verse number four. And when they, these elders of the Jews, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. These elders were pleading with Jesus. What did they say? They said, he, the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. Why would Jews be pleading on behalf of a Roman centurion? Look at this. Verse 5, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Hold, wait. Hold on, that doesn't make any sense to me. This guy is an occupier. Why in the world would he care about the people? You would think that most of them would just be like, I can't wait till my tour is done here in Judea and then I can just get out of here and go back home to Rome. But instead, this centurion cared for the people that were underneath him, so much so that he donated of his own money to help them have a place to worship God. There's something different about this centurion. We also know that he has a heart towards those that are his servants. Think of this. Servants in their day and age were human machines. That's all that they were. And when it's like, hey, they're they're broken. They're broken? Replace them. Get another person in here and I'm going to get another servant. But this centurion cared about one of his servants who fell ill, paralyzed, near death, so much so that he was willing to go ask for help. This tells me the centurion has a heart for the people that are under his authority. So, all of this stuff, I wanted to show you this synagogue, the place is Capernaum. Um, I think we have a picture of the synagogue of Capernaum being rebuilt. Um, It didn't look like this in the late 18th. They were just, you know, the columns were in their separate sections and covered with a whole bunch of vegetation and they found it and were like, wait, this is the synagogue of Capernaum. This is the one that the Roman centurion helped fund, the one we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 8. In the year 2000, I had a chance to go to Israel and to be in this synagogue and to realize, wait, this guy had a part, this centurion had a part in the in funding the building of this synagogue. And not only that, this synagogue definitely has history because there's some places in Israel where you're not sure exactly where something happened. You're like, it may have happened here, it may have happened there, but someplace in this area. This synagogue is one of those places where you're like, no, this is the synagogue. And the other thing about the synagogue that's really cool is not only did that centurion finance this, Jesus taught here. In John chapter 6, verse 58 and 59, also on your screen, Jesus was at the end of a message that he was sharing here. And he said it was about him being the bread of life, right? He said, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. And then look at this, verse 59. He said, Jesus said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. The one that was financed by the 
centurion. This centurion is, when I first heard this message taught, I was absolutely fascinated. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Because this guy got it. And you wouldn't think that he would get it because he's from the wrong culture. He's got the wrong appearance. He's got, you wouldn't think he would have any heart towards God, but that just shows how wrong we can be when we go off of appearance. You know, the culture said that this centurion shouldn't care about his slave. This centurion shouldn't care about the people that he's uh, policing over. He shouldn't care about them. They're just an, a means to an end. He just does a good job here. They, stop, they don't complain too much about him. He gets to go home and it's fine. He didn't settle for that. He thought, you know what? What can I do to improve these people's lives? What can I do to help them? He, I don't know that he would use the word blessing, but what can I do to make their lives better? And the thing that I notice about this centurion is he came to Jesus with humility. This is a truth. Anyone that comes to Jesus has to come with, to him in humility. If you say you're a Christian and you're saved, you got saved because you were humble and you said, I can't do this. Jesus, you can do this. I need you. No prideful person can be saved. It, think about it logically. I got this. Well, then you don't need Jesus. You can't be saved because you lie to yourself and say, you got this. As you know in your heart of hearts, you don't. I like how this centurion who had years of experience, no doubt um, a personality that drew people to himself. He had all these things that you know, the world would go, man, that's a guy. Like he's a, he's got, he can do it himself. He realized he couldn't and he decided to go to Jesus. And then, you know, when you come to Jesus, is Jesus going to go, well, you know, I already, you know, I taught this message. It's a pretty awesome message. You'll read about in the Bible in you know, a little while here. When Matthew writes this down, you'll be, it'll be amazing. It's an amazing sermon. And then after that, I, I ended up healing a guy. So I've done my one miracle a day, all right? So I'm kind of like tired right now. And Centurion comes to him and is like, hey, can you, you know, he sends people to speak on his behalf. Can you heal this servant? What if Jesus said, listen, I'm sure you understand. I'm really busy and I had a full day already. Already did a miracle. I think I'm going to say no. This is what you'll see in the scriptures. Every person that comes to Jesus, Jesus receives. Every single one. Wait, so then why do people not have a relationship with Jesus? Because of them. Their pride is what keeps them from being right with God. As long as you say you've got it, then you can't get close to God because you are saying you, you don't need him. This centurion understood that he needed God. And so then when he comes to Jesus, what did Jesus say to him? Verse seven, it's in your Bibles. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. I love it. Jesus didn't even like mince words, didn't like go, well, oh, really, it's getting late. You need help? You've come to me? I will come and heal him. Last week's message, the title was Jesus is willing. And we see it here again and you'll see it throughout the gospels. Jesus is willing. The question is, will you humble yourself to ask him? So then Jesus says he's willing. And if you look at Matthew and Luke, there's different aspects to this story here. But what appears to happen as you put the stories together and you go, okay, it appears that what the centurion did is he sent some representatives to go ahead of him. Those representatives told Jesus, Jesus said, oh, I'm coming right now. And Jesus starts going to the centurion's house. As he's on his way to the centurion's home, the centurion sees him coming. He was probably expecting, you know, those people to come that he sent out. And all of a sudden he sees Jesus coming. 
So then he shows up and now the centurion is having a conversation with Jesus. Verse number eight. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my servant, do this and he does this. This this centurion gets it. He gets that there is um, a hierarchy, not of importance of people as far as like their value. Everybody's value is equal. But as far as there's certain roles people have and responsibilities. I've noticed this as I've lived in this world. I've had a few different jobs. And some of them I've had some bosses that have just been kind to me. And like they ask how you're doing and they, and you, you can see cause they're waiting for your answer cause they really do care. And then I've also worked for some people where it's like, Hey, so did you do the thing I told you to do? And there's no care at all. And in fact, it's just a matter of like, just, you know, it, it, there's no kindness. There's no love. There's no care. And it's just very gruff and abrupt. I would think that this centurion, the way he treated the people that were under his authority, that he was a kind man and that people wanted to work for, or work is not the, the thing, but to serve underneath his leadership. I think people wanted to. And I would encourage you with this too. He understands authority. I believe that as our culture continues on, I think there's this real breakdown when it comes to authority. Because what you'll notice is, Well, here's a question for you. How long do you work at a job before you start to complain about how management is doing things? Man, those fools, like they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Man, see, they don't know how it works right here. This is where the work gets done, right here, and they don't understand it. Man, give me five minutes in their job. I'll totally fix this whole place, right? And I say that, I wonder if you chuckle because you've said it or thought it. Now you get a couple people that are like that and they get together and now they start chatting with each other. Oh yeah, our boss is a total idiot. Like, isn't he? Total idiot. Doesn't even know what he's doing. Like, what a fool. And then all of a sudden, work becomes talking about how the person in authority above you is a fool. That doesn't seem like a profitable way to be at work. And it also seems like a disrespectful way if you call yourself a Christian because I have to ask you this, who put that person in an authority above you? I think there's this breakdown of it's like, you know, I just, if I was the boss, I would fix things. Here's what I've noticed. Some people live long enough that they don't know, they don't just serve in a person, in a position where they're under authority. Maybe if they're in the same place long enough, they suddenly get to that position of authority and then they realize, oh, this is harder than I thought. They also realize this other thing. Man, when I was just an employee, like when I was done, I went home. I didn't think about work at all. But now that I'm in authority, I don't ever stop thinking about it. I never stop thinking about all the people that work underneath me, their families, the responsibility. I don't stop thinking about the decisions that I make or not just for me. It used to be just for me when I was just an employee, but I'm not an employee anymore. I'm a manager, a boss, a CEO. I should, I need to choose carefully. Now, here's what it looks like for somebody who's lower down on that tree, that, um, you know, organizational chart. Oh, why are they dragging their feet? Why can't they make decisions fast? And like, just do it. So what if you're wrong and the company folds or goes under? That's exactly what somebody who doesn't understand the responsibility of authority would say. It's a naive thing to say. All you have to do is stick that person in a position where they have the authority and go, by the way, the lives and the livelihood of all these families are dependent on your decision. Choose carefully. 
Oh, maybe I'll slow down a little bit and think about my decision. Oh, wow. It's funny. You seem to be acting like your boss. I think there's a breakdown in our society and I think there's a temptation for us to badmouth and backstab the people that, listen, God has put an authority above us. This centurion got it. This centurion said, I look at you, Lord, and I understand what it is to be under authority because I think he could perceive that Jesus was under the authority of someone, God the Father. But I also think he understood, man, I'm a person who is in charge of 100 guys the person I'm talking to right now is in charge of way more people than me. And so I'm going to address him in the proper and correct way. I'm going to address him as Lord. We learn from the leper. The leper called Jesus Lord last week. And this week we see a centurion called Jesus Lord. And I ask you this. Do you understand, and I ask myself this, do I understand who I'm talking to when I pray? I do believe that, you know, is Jesus your friend? Yes, he is your friend. Absolutely, but here's the problem. People take that friendliness or they take that and it becomes this relationship that is, there's contempt there. Here's how it looks like. Well, Jesus, you know, Jesus is like my homeboy. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. He's your friend, but don't ever, ever, ever get so, hey, chummy, chummy Jesus that you forget he is your master. At no point did he stop being your master. So while he's a friend of yours and you're a friend of his and you're like, Jesus, thanks for being my friend and this and that. And then Jesus says, hey, by the way, I want you to do this. Ah, I don't know, Jesus. No, that's the wrong response. Your master isn't asking you, he's telling you. And I wonder how many times in our life we struggle because we're just like, hey, Jesus, let's discuss this. Jesus is like, no discussion. I'm commanding as your king. That person that keeps coming to mind, I want you to reach out to them. That's why they keep coming to mind. Yeah, but there's other people in the church and other people can take care of that and there's other people that can... And Jesus is just saying, I'm not asking you. And that's where, oh, well, Jesus, we're just friendly. We're fr- I don't know if I like our friendship anymore. Well, if you forget he's your master, then I don't, I don't think you can truly be a friend of Jesus if you don't understand that he's your master and your king. There's a balance between those two. And sometimes you see people go so far overboard to the point where then Jesus, maybe he's not telling them to do something. Listen carefully. Maybe he's telling them to stop doing something. Oh, but I just love you. You're my friend, Jesus. Jesus is my friend. You know, it says it in the Bible that Jesus just loves people. And I mean, it says it on that wall right there. You're loved. Jesus loves us. It's great. He loves me so much that I can just keep doing what I know he told me not to do. Well, a couple things. That's no friend. And second... He doesn't seem like your master. I don't know. Let's just look at facts for a moment here. This centurion said, Jesus, Lord, I look at you. I understand how things pan out. And I understand if you say something, it's going to happen. And I understand that I, I have no authority over you. Wow. If we would realize that when we come to Jesus, we have no authority to make him do anything. Well, boy, that really blows out the prosperity doctrine and that blows out the whole, you know, uh, positive confession movement. Like, I'm going to say it and God's going to have his arm twisted behind his back because I did it. I'm sorry, you don't understand authority. The centurion understood authority. He lives in a world where leaders lead and followers follow. And he realized when he was meeting with Jesus, he's like, I know who I am. I'm the follower. I'm the servant. 
I'm the slave. Jesus, you are my, there's the word he said again, Lord. I wonder if the challenge that I'm going through or you're going through currently, I wonder if the solution to it is, is the fact that we're looking at God in the wrong perspective. And he's been telling us clearly what we should be doing and we've just been like, ah, ah, nah, I don't know. I mean, I know that relationship isn't right, but come on, God, like, it's okay. And he's just like, I'm not asking you. And see, as long as we continue to be disobedient to the authority God has put above us, are we expecting the blessing of the Lord on our life? Why would that happen, right? I love this. The centurion basically is just going, Jesus, you say the word. You can just say the word. You don't even have to show up. I know you're so powerful that you can just say it and it'll happen. But it's all if you want to. So you think about this. This situation right here, this is the first long distance healing that we're going to see in the New Testament. Definitely not the last, but it's, it's the first. Jesus, when he was speaking, Jesus said this, <laughs> that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. All authority. Wow, that's somebody that's really powerful. Yep. And if you're a Christian, that's your king. Which means you can just come to him and ask him and Jesus can help you. Now, his answer will always be the right one. It just may not be the one you wanted. But then again, isn't that where we get the, it wrong? It's like the idea of, well, I'm going to tell God what I'd really like to happen. And God's going to go, I hear you. And I'm going to do the best thing. And then God does the best thing. And we're like, that's not what I wanted. I don't like you, God. Well, I think we forgot where the roles were. God knows what he's doing. At no point has God ever asked me, Jim, you know, I'm really stuck on the situation. And I... Jim, buddy, pal, how about we talk about this? Maybe you can, uh, yeah, God, let me tell you something. Let me give you some great insight for my life. And then I share something with God and God's like, there's the answer. Thank you, Jim. You know what? That's never, ever happened. And it never will. Be careful that you're not getting into a conversation with God where you're trying to tell him something that he doesn't know. When really, when really it's you and I that don't know things. We don't have the big picture. We don't. How is it that the death of a loved one can be God's will? Give it some time and you'll see. At the moment, is it hard? Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. When tragedy strikes, how can any good come out of this? I can tell you, the one person who can make good come out of tragedy is God. It's just that we live in such a small attention span kind of a life. We sometimes don't see in our narrow, narrow slit of a view. We can't figure out how it all fits. Meanwhile, God goes, even your pain will not be wasted. The struggles you and I have experienced in this life will not be wasted because if there's somebody that can redeem pain, it's God. Jesus went on the cross and died a horrific, excruciating death. And did God use that for his glory? Yeah, he did. So uh, a God that knows how to take that and make it be for the good of all mankind, I think he can fix my problem and your problem for his glory. Please, church, do not be discouraged when God answers it in a way that you didn't want. Because know this, he will always answer it in the best way. Verse 10. So when Jesus hears the centurion and he gets the whole authority thing right and he figures out how it really works, look at what Jesus says. This is where the title comes from. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, the other Jews that were around him, Jesus like puts a pause in it and says, hold on a second. Guys, and this is what Jesus says to the people around him. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
You realize the implication? Including you. <laughs> He's telling these people, like, I want you guys, this, this is such an important moment right now. I want you to see, I have never seen so much faith in Israel. And that means within the Jewish people is what he's saying. Within the Jews, I have never seen as much faith as I've just seen with this centurion. Could you imagine the Jews going, oh, okay, so that's kind of like a model for how we should do, okay, all right. Kind of hurt, kind of hurt that you said that, but okay. And now Jesus is going to talk about Something that kind of, it seems shocking when you just read it in here, but let's read it and find out why Jesus said this. Look at this. After he talks about the faith of the centurion, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from the east and west, that means outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish nation, and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Interesting. So non-Jews are going to be sitting with the patriarchs at a table? It's kind of like the vision of Revelation about the marriage feast and like, Interesting, but okay, that, so that's people outside. There are going to be some people outside of Judaism that are going to be at that table in heaven, saved. Now, this is mind-blowing for the people that are listening, going, oh, no, no, that's, that's a Gentile dog. That's Centurion. I mean, he's kind of buff, but he's still going to, you know, he's going to burn in the fires of hell. Like, there's no way. Jesus stops and goes, there's going to be some people that are going to come from the east and the west, and they're going to be sitting with Father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But then look what he says next, verse 12. While that's happening, the sons of the kingdom meaning some, some Jews, they're born as Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa, it got really dark there. It's like we were talking about like the feast and people from outside of Judaism will be sitting there. And then in the next verse here, Jesus is saying, and you know, meanwhile, there'll be some Jews who think that they're truly followers, but they're not. They're like, yeah, my mom and my dad, you know, they're Jewish, therefore I'm Jewish, therefore I'm already good to go. I was born into the right culture. I was born into the right, you know, ethnicity. I was born into the right, I, I am fine. I don't need to do anything. It's like I'm, I was born right. And Jesus says some of them in their last breath and after judgment will find themselves. It's like, wait, that kind of sounds like hell. Yes. See, Jesus doesn't want people to be fooled on appearances. The centurion, unlikely. The Jew, oh, Jewish people are like, they're like automatically in. They get like the go to heaven pass, right? Jesus says, no. Every person must make the decision for Christ. So you may have been born a Jew, but that doesn't mean that you are a follower of God. Can you imagine the shock of some of those people going, whoa, wait a second, I'm from within the family, am I? And it's great because it made them stop and consider, are you going off of your credentials or do you truly have a relationship with God? <clears throat> you know, um, I want to put a picture up and it's a picture of a vision that a man named Peter had. Kind of an odd picture, I know, I know, I know. Uh, it, but so if you're like, what, it looks like it's a, a, like a sheet with a bunch of animals on it. Congratulations! That's exactly what that is. And that's from the book of Acts. Peter was, he was, he was on top of a roof. It was noon. He was hungry. You get it. You're kind of hangry. It's the middle of the day. You haven't eaten. And then he kind of zones out. He just starts zoning out and he gets this vision. And the vision that he had was that. A sheet with animals of all different kinds and reptiles and birds being lowered down from heaven. And then a voice saying, take and eat. And Peter's like, no, no, that's unclean. They're thinking, no, no, that's unclean. I've never eaten that. I'm a Jew. I don't eat that stuff. I'm not doing that. And it would go back up to heaven. And then that same vision happened to Peter three times. 
And Peter was just like, what's that all about? Meanwhile, as all that was happening, a group of people came to the place where Peter was. I don't know if they knocked, but you know, they said hi. And they're, he, and they're like, hey, listen, we were sent from a centurion. And this is a different centurion. His name was Cornelius. And he was told to send people here to this house and that that person would tell them about the true and living God. And Peter's like, and what this was all about was this vision was God preparing Peter. Because Peter would be like, no, nope, there's certain things that are clean. There's certain things that are unclean. There's things that I do. There's things that I don't do. And the thing with the Jew, the Jew was like, oh, with other Jews, love them. Non-Jews, Gentiles, hate them. And what, Jesus, uh, what God was doing with this vision was to prepare Peter just moments before <laughs> representatives of Cornelius the centurion showed up at his gate. And they said, hey, is somebody here know about the true and living God? Because our master said that we're supposed to come here and find that person. And see, God was preparing Peter. Hey, you, you're saying there's people you don't associate with. Oh, I'm not like them. They're not like me. They're a different color. They're a different uh, culture. They're a different um, financial um, um, background. You know, it's all different. We're not the same. This world loves to divide people. And you know what I love about God? God's like, hey, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And there are people in this world that it's like, well, we don't ever associate with them. You know who loves them? You know who loves them is God. And if God loves the people of this world, shouldn't God's people love the people of this world? So Peter had a lesson and it was taught by a very interesting vision. And you know what Peter does? Peter does go. Peter goes to the guy's house. And now for the Jew, it's like, oh, you're going to be, un- you're going to be defiled because you're there with a Gentile. And you know, Peter was like, God was trying to teach me that I need to have my heart open to everyone. And you know what happened? That centurion was saved, as was his household. We have stories in church history of centurions who have given their life to Jesus and then were martyred because they would not deny Jesus. You see that same military mindset of I'm going to do what's right and my life may be demanded of me and it's okay because this is my role. And if I need to stand here and fight or if I need to hold my ground while I'm overwhelmed, I'll do it because I'm a soldier and that's what I'm called to do. You take that mindset and you become a Christian. It's like, listen, I love Jesus and I don't care what the world says. I don't care how many people, I don't care if in a, if in a popularity poll, all of a sudden I'm in the minority because most of the people say that this is false and that Jesus isn't true and this is a fairy tale. You know what? I'm going to be a soldier for Christ and I'm going to hold my ground. And if I die in this spot, hey, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. So whether I live or I die, I'm with Christ. I think we need a little bit more of that military mentality in the sense of having a spine when it comes to our faith. Don't let the world and its words suddenly make you crumble and fall into a puddle on the floor because they said something about your faith. Stand your ground. And you know what? There's a peace that comes when you stand your ground. I'm so thankful that God opened up salvation to not just the Jews, but to everyone who would believe. Because otherwise, this kid whose family was born in India would never have had a chance to be a Christian. And by the way, most of you. Aren't you glad that God always had it in his plan to have it opened up to anyone who would believe? I'm so thankful. So we're kind of winding down this message, but the title of the message, Marvel, it's, it's a very unique word. In fact, you only see Jesus marveling twice. The first time is a centurion. And what was he marveling at? The faith that this guy had. And now I have, a, I have a hard time with my tiny little mind. I have a hard time understanding how Jesus, God in the flesh, is marveling at anything, right? But 
this faith, I think it's kind of like a parent when they see a child do something and they know their child is gifted or has these skills and, and stuff, but they see their child come up with something creative and they're just like, that's my child. It's like, it's not that they didn't know their child could do that, but when they see it happen, there's just something heartwarming that just, you know. At the same time, flip that over. You know, when a parent sees a child do something and they're like, that's my child. <laughs> While I'm a bit, I, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away that they did that. I'm not totally shocked that they did that, right? Well, we said Jesus marveled twice. The first time was at the faith of the centurion. Where was the second time that Jesus marveled? It's, also, it's in the gospels, it's in Mark. Here it is on the screen. Mark 6, 4 through 6. What makes Jesus marvel? And Jesus said to them, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He's trying to tell them that he's God and he's telling them the truth. Look what they said. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. They were like, you're not God. Verse five, and he could do no mighty work there because their unbelief was restricting except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And look at verse six. This is the second place we see Jesus marveling in the Bible. And he marveled because of, this is not good, their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This story has always struck me, this one about the centurion. And the thing that strikes me is not the healing of the person, the servant at the end of the story. I think that's great. And for the servant, I'm sure it was the best day of his life, right? But I don't know that that's the point of the story. I think the point of the story is not the miracle of the healing. I think the point of the story is Jesus marveled at the faith of a man. And this man's faith, he just understood who God was. And he lived his life in that way. Church, I just want to say this. Make sure you get right your relationship with God. Make sure you understand you are not God's advisor. You are his servant. You are not God's master you are his slave. Ooh, that's a strong word. I don't like that word. It's used in the scriptures. And remember, we're all a slave to someone. You just get to pick who your master is. I would choose God over anyone else. Last thought. Worship team's going to come on up here. I want to share this last thought. This world is full of centurions. What do I mean by centurions? People who have it all together. Like, you know, they've got good jobs, their family looks good, they're financially doing well. It seems like everything's just going great for them. You know what I love about the centurion? It didn't matter how much money he had or how well he was doing or how prestigious he was. He realized that that didn't mean anything when it came to knowing God. He had to humble himself. And you and I are going to come across people who in this life, they're like centurions. In the sense, they seem to have it all together. But maybe unlike this centurion, they don't know God. And it can be intimidating. Well, that person's famous. That person's rich. That person's so smart. They have all these degrees and all this other stuff. I could never talk to them about Jesus. I want you to know this. Don't you ever be intimidated by a centurion. They have a need for Jesus just as much as you and I do. And if you're going to be afraid to talk to them, then how are they ever going to find out the truth? I'm so glad that Jesus didn't treat people differently. He loved the centurion like he would love anybody else. He wasn't like, oh, you're a centurion. Hold on, let me, uh, let me act weird around you because you're super cool. He just treated him and loved him like he would love anybody else. Church, when you run into a person, don't worry so much about what they look like on the outside. Just realize that God loves them deeply and ask God to give you the heart that God has for them. Let's pray. Father, as we close this message and we consider the work that you did, Jesus, we thank you that you are no respecter of persons. Like it says in 1 Samuel, man looks on the outside, but God looks upon the heart. 
I pray that we would have eyes that are like that, that we would be able to look upon the heart of people and that we would be able to see past maybe a rough outside or a, um, an annoying outside or an angry outside. God, I pray that you would give us strength to overcome the things that make us walk away from certain people, that make us so frustrated that we could care less if we ever have another conversation with them. God, I pray that we would remember that you love them deeply and that we wouldn't move away from them, that we would move towards them. At the very least, we would pray for them. God, thank you so much for this story. And we pray that you would also marvel, but not at our unbelief, but God, as our faith, as we choose to obediently follow you. Thank you for being our master and our king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.